If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of April 18, 2021. The podcast that invented the inflatable dartboard. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's reflagronize the news of the bogus. First, an update on the McCloskey case. You remember this couple. They defended their home from a mob that had broken the gate to their community and kept them at bay with a pair of firearms. And rather than going, Huh, I guess defensive gun use is a thing. The lefties hit the ceiling about how they were the most evil people since the Manson family. Prosecutor Kim Gardner was ready to make hay while the sun shines with this and illegally used her upcoming prosecution of the couple to raise money for her re-election campaign. And you might remember something she did that was even more illegal than that. Patricia McCloskey is a lawyer, like her husband, and she'd used her gun as a prop in court. To do so, she had to render it unable to fire, so she turned the firing pin around the wrong way. She hadn't fixed it back, so she was actually bluffing the crowd. Her weapon was incapable of firing. But the law she's charged under requires the weapon to be functional. So her office, and there is documented proof of this, disassembled the weapon, fixed the firing pin, put it back together, and then certified that it was capable of firing so they could charge her. And then, in one of the most incredible examples of chutzpah I've ever heard of, they charged her with tampering with evidence. Judge Thomas Clark removed Gardner and her entire office from the case. She tried to appeal, which was denied, and she took it to the Missouri Supreme Court, who just ruled against her. Clark's ruling on December 10th, as upheld by the Missouri Supreme Court, found that her email solicitations for her campaign contributions demonstrates that she was prosecuting the McCloskeys for personal and political reasons and jeopardized their right to a fair trial. Quote, The court finds the emails raise an appearance of impropriety and warrant disqualification. In short, the circuit attorney's conduct raises the appearance that she initiated a criminal prosecution for political purposes. Ms. Gardner asserts that the emails were campaign speech intended to respond to criticism and were simply soliciting assistance from voters to help her, quote, fight back against the unprecedented level of verbal attacks from prominent Republicans and right-wing media, unquote. If this is so, then why mention defendant? The email language extends beyond campaign rhetoric. Rather, it seeks to seemingly energize supporters to contribute by referencing defendant, his conduct, and even his social status. Like a needle-pulling thread, she links the defendant and his conduct to her critics. To a reasonable person, this language forecasts prosecutorial action. Potentially affecting his right to a fair trial and impacting the public perspective, the twin fundraising solicitations paint defendant as a wealthy elitist, and perhaps worse. Again, it strikes the court as inappropriate that this labeling is occurring within twin campaign solicitations to raise money. Understandably, Ms. Garner has every right to rebut criticism, but it appears unnecessary to stigmatize defendant or even mention him in campaign solicitations, especially when she purports to be responding to others. In fact, the case law and rules of professional conduct prohibit it. The campaign emails demonstrate the circuit attorney's personal interest in this case, 
raise the appearance of impropriety, and jeopardize the defendant's right to a fair trial. She is accountable, not just to the voters, but to the rule of law. The court is similarly obligated to follow the law. These email solicitations aim to raise money using the defendant and the circumstances surrounding the case to rally Ms. Gardner's political base and fuel contributions. The awesome power to prosecute ought never to be manipulated for personal or political profit. U.S. Attorney Richard Callahan, an Obama appointee, has been appointed special prosecutor for the case. They have a status hearing on April 30. If you're looking for ways to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand advertisements, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to listen to the podcast and all of my videos on BitTube.tv or LBRY.tv to get cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. Or if you listen to the podcast at the podcast page, you'll also generate crypto. You can also go to airtime.bogosity.tv to get the airtime extension and generate crypto for yourself and the creators on the web anywhere you go, including my YouTube channel. Get five tubes free just for installing the extension and signing up, and then simply browse the web as normal. Easily monetize your favorite creators and yourself with cryptocurrency without advertising on BitTube.tv or LBRY.tv or with the Airtime extension at Airtime.Pagosity.tv. In our coverage of the January 6th Capitol building occupation, we discovered that the only thing that was more of a joke than that ridiculous occupation itself was politicians and the news media screeching that it was the biggest attack on democracy ever. The histrionics spilled over into prosecutions, but thankfully it seems like the courts are getting wise. With the exception of a handful of cases, most of the nearly 300 defendants are guilty merely of misdemeanor trespass. Yet prosecutors are even trying to deny bail to these defendants. The first of the cases surrounding bail for these defendants was the case of Lisa Eisenhart and her son Eric Munkel. And the D.C. Circuit Court ruled that there's no need for them to be jailed in advance of their trial. There's no flight risk. They never did pose any real danger, and any danger they might have posed was unique to events on the 6th. They ruled... Here, the district court did not adequately demonstrate that it considered whether Munkel and Eisenhart posed an articulable threat to the community in view of their conduct on January 6, and the particular circumstances of January 6. In our view, those who actually assaulted police officers and broke through windows, doors, and barricades, and those who aided, conspired with, planned, or coordinated such actions are in a different category of dangerousness than those who cheered on the violence or entered the Capitol after others cleared the way. The district court also failed to demonstrate that it considered the specific circumstances that made it possible on January 6th for Munkel and Eisenhart to threaten the peaceful transfer of power. The appellants had a unique opportunity to obstruct democracy on January 6th because of the Electoral College vote tally taking place that day and the concurrently scheduled rallies and protests. Because Munkel and Eisenhart did not vandalize any property or commit violence, the presence of the group was critical to their ability to obstruct the vote and to cause danger to the community. Without it, Munkel and Eisenhart, two individuals who did not engage in any violence and who were not involved in planning or coordinating the activities, seemingly would have posed little threat. 
The district court found that appellants were a danger to act against Congress in the future, but there was no explanation of how the appellants would be capable of doing so now that the specific circumstances of January 6 have passed. It cannot be gainsaid that the violent breach of the Capitol on January 6 was a grave danger to our democracy and that those who participated could rightly be subject to detention to safeguard the community. While the two Democratic appointees on the panel, Robert Wilkins and Judith Rogers, stopped short of explicitly demanding that they be released, they did take away every reason the prosecution had for keeping them locked up. On the other hand, the third judge, Trump appointee Gregory Katsas, would have completely overturned the decision. He wrote, My colleagues and I agree on this central point about the governing legal standard in these appeals. We also agree that the district court failed to justify the detention of Munkle and Eisenhart on the record before it. But whereas my colleagues remand for a do-over, I would reverse outright. Their misconduct was serious, but it hardly threatened to topple the republic. Nor, for that matter, did it reveal an unmitigable propensity for future violence. During the chaos of the Capitol riot, Munkle and Eisenhart had ample opportunity to fight. Yet, neither of them did. Munkle lawfully possessed several firearms in his home, but he took none into the Capitol. Indeed, before entering the Capitol, Munkle and Eisenhart stashed a knife inside a backpack that they left outside, precisely for fear of ending up in federal prison. The district court identified one such threat, that Munkle and Eisenhart would attempt to stop or delay the peaceful transfer of power. But the transition has come and gone, and that threat has long passed. In the district court, the government warned of an upcoming protest scheduled for March 4, but that protest never materialized, and the government produced no evidence that Munkle and Eisenhart had been involved in its planning before their arrest. The government's gesturing towards the possibility of their joining future protests falls well short of any identified and articulable threat. Putting it all together, because the record strongly suggests that Munkle and Eisenhart would present no safety risk if subjected to strict release conditions, the district court clearly erred in finding that the government had proved its case by clear and convincing evidence. The entire panel criticized the delay in Munkle and Eisenhart's case. After a magistrate judge in Tennessee ordered them to be released to home detention, they still spent three weeks in custody without a further hearing. There have been similar delays in other January 6 cases, some because the Marshal Service or other jailers just lost track of the orders to move defendants to D.C. They ruled. While COVID-19 issues caused a delay in the appellant's transport to the District of Columbia, the record does not indicate why a D.C. district judge could not have heard this matter prior to February 17, even if the appellants were in another location. Ultimately, this issue, while troubling, is not presented as a ground for reversal in this appeal. They pointed out that the statute mandated that the review occur promptly. Here's hoping cooler heads start to prevail. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? 
For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government sensors. It's essential in this day and age, so go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world, and they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. Lest you think our first two stories were anything new or isolated with regards to the government's very dubious dedication to justice, we have an amazing failure of the war on drugs and the NYPD, which has just resulted in the reversal of possibly hundreds of drug convictions. Despite the bloviating from law enforcement that drugs are everywhere, there doesn't seem to be enough to actually result in that much for cops to do, so they have to create their own. That's what Joseph E. Franco did with at least a hundred arrests out of the thousands he's made regarding the possession and sale of drugs, and more will likely follow. After several cases of him lying about drug sales that video evidence proved never happened, Franco was charged with perjury in 2019. He was fired in April of 2020. Previously, the Manhattan DA's office dismissed 40 open cases and in the coming weeks says it will move to vacate and dismiss about a hundred more. Brooklyn tossed out 90 convictions last week. Tina Luongo of the Legal Aid Society said that Franco, quote, touched thousands of cases throughout New York City, and we may never know the full extent of the damage he caused and the lives he upended. And it looks like it may just be the start. Bronx DA Darcel Clark's office says they're reviewing about 150 cases and will dismiss all of them where Franco played an essential role. Most of these cases resulted in guilty pleas, but this is the lesson we keep urging people to learn. A guilty plea is not a confession. It's basically legal extortion, where the prosecutor threatens to charge the defendant with a far greater sentence if they don't plea. And what's an innocent person going to do against a cop like Franco who's willing to lie on the stand? As Marianne Cation of Brooklyn Defender Services said, quote, People understand that when it's their word against the word of an officer, the system is not designed to give them the benefit of the doubt. Many people will decide that it's not worth it to them. Without something pretty major like a video of the incident, no judge or jury is going to believe them over the cop. But maybe that presumption of the cop's honesty is something people should reconsider. And even so, as Luongo points out, the damage is far greater. Quote, The damage is done at the point of arrest. They likely had bail set on them, spent time at Rikers Island, lost jobs, were separated from their families. No matter what happens, those harms were done. And it's far from just this one cop. Over a three-year period, an investigation by the New York Times found more than 25 instances where judges or prosecutors determined that a New York City police officer's testimony was likely false. And we've also covered cases of thousands of drug samples being mishandled or other things that compromise testing and even returning positive results on samples that were never tested. 
It was advocacy groups like the Exoneration Project and the Legal Aid Society who were the driving force behind these reviews. We need more like them. Franco worked for the NYPD for over 20 years before this was discovered. How long was he lying? There's likely no way to tell. But if he's that comfortable lying on the stand, he's been doing it a long time. Someone needs to ask what failure in oversight led to this being overlooked for so long, basically until it got too big to ignore. But the ultimate solution is just to end the insane and psychotic war on drugs, which does nothing to help addicts or get drugs off the streets, but wastes billions of tax dollars that only ensure that Americans can buy purer drugs and often more dangerous ones that cause them to inadvertently overdose. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain, or regulations passed in the name of safety, and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 apiece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to metricize this week's biggest bogon emitter. And it's another one for the NHS for blatantly violating security and privacy guidelines on both Android and iOS apps. Both the Apple and Google Play stores have blocked an update to the NHS's COVID-19 contact tracing app. The old version remains up, but the new one violated the policies of both stores by adding location tracking in addition to using Bluetooth technologies to keep track of who might have come into contact with an infected person. A while back, we covered a secure and private protocol for using Bluetooth for contact tracing, but governments basically ignored it, instead implementing one that allows them full access to all the data. But although they were great at tracking people, they were horrible at actual contact tracing. So Google and Apple required apps that use their stores to use the more private API they've designed called Exposure Notifications. Under this protocol, private and secure keys, randomly rotating every 10 to 20 minutes, keep track of one's contacts. When someone tests positive for COVID, they voluntarily tell the app that, and it then reports its beacons to the list. User identity is not shared with Apple, Google, other users, or any governments. But governments could still use that data to track users by turning on location services, which is why those apps are specifically prohibited from doing so, even if they leave it as opt-in for the users. No app is allowed to use both the exposure notifications and the location permissions. But even though the NHS is absolutely the bad actor here, it's Google and Apple who are being criticized. The Washington Post has been whining that the app does too much to protect privacy, keeping our health data out of the hands of bureaucrats. 
And now the BBC have gotten into it, complaining that Google and Apple are basically standing up for the privacy of their users. Quote, What this underlines is that governments around the world have been forced to frame part of their response to the global pandemic according to rules set down by giant unelected corporations. Wait a minute. Aren't you guys a giant unelected corporation? And for that matter, who at the NHS is elected? Quote, At a time when the power of the tech giants is under the microscope as never before, that will leave many people feeling uncomfortable. Oh, is that so? Tell me, whom do we have to worry about more with regards to privacy violations? Private companies or government? And besides, let me reiterate, Google and Apple can't get your contact data any more than governments can. Everyone's data is kept private from everyone else. The government tried to cheat and break the rules. Google and Apple said no, and good for them. How far gone do you have to be to complain that tech companies are refusing to let governments violate an established privacy framework? Maybe you'd better remember this next time the BBC or WAPO or some other fake news outlet goes whining about, Whoa! My big evil corporation! It's clear now that governments in the news media hate nothing more than your privacy. We've seen it when they whine about end-to-end encryption, we've seen it when they whine about cryptocurrency, and we're seeing it now with contact tracing. Put this on the pile with the clipper chip, demands for encryption backdoors, and trying to claim that cryptocurrencies are illegal securities. I've said it before, I'll say it again, and I'll keep saying it till it sinks in. Privacy and security need to be built in by default, and securing your data means securing it from both big tech and governments, and everyone else on the planet. Beware of anyone who wants to get in the way of that. So all of that makes the NHS this week's biggest bogan emitter. to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's denitrify this week's Idiot Extraordinary! And this week it goes to MSNBC, and in particular their host Tiffany Cross of The Cross Connection, and her guest Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent for The Nation. Mistal appeared on The Cross Connection to attack the character of the jurors in the Derek Chauvin trial, the officer charged with the murder of George Floyd last year. And the jurors haven't even done anything yet! 
By the way, any new listeners, before you go making assumptions about us due to this coverage, check the history of this podcast with regards to George Floyd and police in general. We are most definitely not on the side of the cops who are really just thugs with badges. But we are in favor of the rights of defendants, and one thing we do strive for is consistency. So this horrible human being said, quote, You have to remember, this jury has been seated with ignorance. Um, I think the word you're looking for there is impartiality. Jury selection took several days. Ideally, you'd want jurors who hadn't heard any of the coverage or seen the videos, but that wasn't going to happen given the amount of attention this case has received. But they were able to find jurors who, when questioned during voir dire, really appeared to be impartial. Like the defense, the prosecution is satisfied they've selected a jury that will be impartial. But Mistal thinks he knows better than the prosecutors. Quote, It's been seated with people who either did not see the video, which is almost impossible to do in this country, or saw the video and couldn't decide if sometimes maybe black people do need to be choked to death for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Maybe they had it coming. No one said that, liar! But that's exactly why you are the exact kind of person who should be kept far away from any jury. You're supposed to base your deliberations on what you see in the trial and only what you see in the trial. It's an ideal, and maybe people fall short of it, but at least those of us with integrity would try, unlike you. And Miss Dahl, I really hope that if you're ever in that defendant's chair for whatever reason, that there's no one like you on the jury who's already made up his mind and thinks he knows best without looking at all the evidence and is willing to make horrible assumptions about his fellow jurors. Because I would want you to get a fair trial. And you don't get a fair trial that way. Quote, They're trying to convince 12 people that have been picked specifically for not knowing things. That's how it's supposed to work, you moron! Quote, That's what frightens me. No, they don't need to put Chauvin on the stand. They need one juror to refuse to see a reason. Yeah, it's called reasonable doubt. It's called burden of proof. It's called innocent until proven guilty. But this moron apparently hates all of these things. Forget a jury, he shouldn't be put in charge of a paper bag! And no, Chauvin doesn't need to take the stand, because no defendant can be forced to testify in a case against himself. And again, I'd want someone to respect your same rights if you're ever a defendant. Of course, he had to bring race into it, quote, We don't let terrorists blame the victims for terrorism. That's not what happens in this country, unless the victim is black. He referred to the four police officers as, quote, White, domestic, state-sponsored terrorists. Even though two of them aren't white. Jeez, and he complained about the jury being ignorant. And notice how Cross didn't seem to think that needed a correction. Quote, When the terrorism is against black people, it is suddenly okay for lawyers to make the arguments and judges to allow evidence suggesting that the victim of the terrorism was at fault for their own death. Uh, hate to break it to you, sunshine, but cops always make that argument at trial, regardless of the race of the defendant. The difference is here, the cop is the defendant. But either way, it's always okay for lawyers to do everything within the bounds of the law to argue a convincing case. In fact, anything less than that would be malpractice. 
And again, I say, if you're ever a defendant, I would want you to have the same right to an attorney with the ability to argue the most zealous defense possible for you. He said that Floyd, quote, was killed with impunity, but Chauvin has lost his job, he's on trial, and the city of Minneapolis paid $27 million to Floyd's family in a civil settlement. Maybe you need to look up the word impunity. MSNBC touted what a, quote, great guest Mistal is, and the only thing the host, Tiffany Cross, had to say about him is, quote, Ellie, you're so good, I hope you can stick around for the next hour. Nice to know MSNBC and their great guests are ready to bring back lynch mobs. Yeah, there's never been anything black people have had to fear about those. Minorities and other vulnerable groups are protected by a consistent application of the rules of evidence, the presumption of innocence, and the burden of proof. It's when those aren't applied consistently that we get injustice. But in order for that to work, it needs to apply to every defendant, even the ones that you don't like. So all of that makes MSNBC, their host Tiffany Cross, and their guest Ellie Mistal this week's Idiot Well, that wraps up this That's White Man's Electricity You're Burning Ringing That Doorbell, That's Theft edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Tom Lehrer. No one is more dangerous than someone who thinks he has the truth. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.